name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and uh, we're glad to have you with us together this morning. Well, you may have uh, seen them from time to time over the last couple of months in their bright yellow reflective vests. They jump out from the shadows and they ambush the unsuspecting. Oftentimes I see them uh, just down at the corner of 64th and 200th Street, flagging people into a parking lot who have been caught texting and driving yet again. Police officers, uh, oftentimes from the Integrated Road Safety Unit, ever vigilant in their attempts to ensure that we leave the phone alone. But some of us still haven't got the message. Well, that's not technically true, actually. We've got the message. We just are choosing not to pay attention to it because we think to ourselves things like, you know, that light just turned red. I'm, I'm good. I probably have at least a minute to pull up my phone and check and see if anyone liked what I put up. Or we think to ourselves, you know, uh, no one's looking right now. I can probably get away with it. I'm good. I'm not the first car in line, so I'll notice when people start to go. But I find what's most interesting about this is my first reaction when I see someone getting pulled over. Last night I was out, I was driving, and I saw, I could see it from a long ways away, somebody pulled over down by the side of the road by the police. And my first reaction is not, my heart is not filled with empathy, kindness, and compassion for the poor soul who made a wrong choice at the wrong time. My initial, like, visceral reaction is, well, it sucks to be you. <laughs> that was an expensive text you just sent right there, wasn't it, friend? Or, it's, or another thing that often goes through my mind is, that serves them right. I bet they text and drive all the time. I mean, they got caught now, but I'm sure they do it at every other light. It's a very human impulse when someone else is getting in trouble and someone else has done something wrong to say, yeah, that's right. They had it coming to them. They deserve that. See, we, when we're in trouble, though, we don't want that. We want mercy. When someone else is in trouble, we want justice for them. We want to be sure that they are punished for what they did wrong. Because clearly they were doing something wrong or else they wouldn't have got pulled over. And when we do something wrong, we want mercy and compassion extended to us. And this is what's going on in the scripture text that we're going to look at today in the book of Amos. This month of January, we're exploring uh, the biblical book of Amos in a series we're calling Back to the Start. And it's a book tucked away, one of the minor prophets, uh, tucked away at the end of the Old Testament. And the theme of the book of Amos, one of the main themes of the book of Amos is justice. How is justice done? What does it look like when justice is done? How do we live with a sense of justice? And how should we respond when God points out things in our lives, individually, corporately, or collectively, that are out of alignment? How do we get back to the start of God's heart in the area of justice and mercy and humility? And these questions are as relevant now as they were when the book of Amos was first written to the nations of Judah and Israel in 750 before Christ. And so last week we looked at the uh, first chapter of the book of Amos. And we saw that Amos started 
his ministry by uh, speaking to the six nations around Israel and Judah. And I can picture as Amos kind of goes through that process and begins to call both people and nations to forsake injustice and violence, people getting a little bit antsy and nervous about it. Because Amos is a shepherd. He's not a professional prophet. He's not an established religious figure. God calls him from his field uh, and his home in the south in Judah to go to uh, speak to the nation of Israel and speak to the nations around Israel. And he calls the nations out on issues of slavery and extreme cruelty and injustice of running over top of other people to get whatever they want. He calls them out on broken treaty promises that they'd made, places where they've lied and spoken untruth. And they've practiced an extreme kind of me-first form of nationalism. And the offenses God's calling these six nations to really could have been ripped out of the news headlines from today. So very relevant conversations for us. And you can almost hear the people of Judah and the people of Israel, as Amos begins to speak to these other nations around the nations of Judah and Israel, and like cheering Amos on, yeah, Amos, go get them. Those nations are super wicked, evil nations. They're doing things that God is really upset about. You go prophesy to them, that's right. Tell them where they're wrong. Go get them, preach it, Amos. Those people, they're sinners. And then without even missing a beat, in chapter 2, Amos finishes the last of those six nations in verse 3 of chapter 2, the nation of Moab. And then right away, verse 3, he jumps right in and brings a charge against the nation of Judah. And you can see that as it switches so quickly, it gets real for the people of Judah very quickly and gets very uncomfortable for them because they were all excited about God dispensing justice to other people. But now, God wants to speak to them about something in their life. And I can hear them say, whoa, 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 Amos. Let's just keep those prophecies of judgment and the things that other people are doing wrong. Let's let God deal with them. And Amos says, no, no, justice begins at home. It begins with us. Jesus picks up on this same theme in one of his stories when he says to people, listen, you want to go around talking about what's wrong with other people, pointing out all kinds of logs in their eyes. Oh, this person's got a problem, that person's got a problem, they're judgmental, they're this. Jesus says, you you want to deal with what's going on in your own life, the speck that's in your own eye before you go around pointing out everything in everybody else's life. And so Amos makes this turn to begin to help people see and examine their own lives. So turn with me uh, in your Bibles or on your phone. There's a Bible inside the Jericho Ridge app if you need to find it that way. And uh, we're gonna look at Amos chapter two, starting in verse four. And we're gonna see that God, through the prophet Amos, continues to use the same language as before, a language of like a court case, court proceedings. God is bringing a charge against the people for wrongdoing, and he's going to bring proof into bear upon that charge and lay out a case against first Judah and then against Israel. So what's the charge God brings against the nation of Judah? Let's read in Amos chapter 2 verse 4. This is what the Lord says, the people of Judah have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They have rejected the instruction of the Lord. They have refused 
to follow and obey his decrees, they have been led astray by the same lies they deceived that deceived their ancestors. So I will send down fire on Judah and all of the fortresses of Jerusalem will be destroyed. God says to Judah, your problem, Judah, is that you have an obedience issue. You know what to do. I've given you my instruction and it's clear, but you've just chosen not to obey that. You've rejected the instruction of the Lord. And in verse 5, we'll talk about this more in the coming weeks, but Amos, when he's using the language of judgment and fire, he doesn't mean literal fire is going to come down and burn people up. He's, fire is a language of refining, of testing, of making sure that something is pure. And oftentimes, uh, experiences or challenges or circumstances will come into our lives that will test us or try us and will cause us to ask the question of whether we're turning to God and depending on God or other sources. And this is where we see out of the offenses listed in the whole book of Amos, Judas's, Judah's offense is actually unique because other nations are being judged based on how they treat other people. And we'll get to Israel's treatment of people in a minute. Last weekend, we talked about uh, how they treated people around them in uh, the other six nations and issues of oppression and slavery and injustice. But Judah's sin is specifically mentioned as being against God. It's vertical between the nation of Judah and between God as opposed to horizontal, which the other nations are being taken to task for, their treatment of other people. So I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm sinning, I tell myself, well, this sin is private. It's not going to hurt anybody. There's no one else that's being damaged in this. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is that really true? Can you ever sin and not hurt anything or anyone. And so the question that Amos brings up for us to consider is what does it mean to sin against God is the language that he's using here. I mean, it sounds serious, but how, what is it? And how could you or I avoid that charge being brought against us? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is that when we're talking about sin, we're always talking about relationship and we are always talking about relationship being broken or ruptured or damaged in some way. Because God has a perfect intent for his world and for you. And when you and I choose to knowingly and willfully violate that intent by rejecting God's instructions or his revealed will or refusing to obey something that God has given us in love and for our flourishing, we are choosing in that moment or in that action to say to God, you know what, I get it. You created the known universe and everything in it, but I think I actually know what's best for me in this situation. Saying, sin is saying to the creator who knows and loves you and has your best in mind, thank you, I will take it from here. That breaks relationship. If you were to do that in a human relationship, that would create a woundedness or a separation. And really that's the definition that the Bible is using when it uses the word sin. There is no sin that does not involve relationship being broken or ruptured in some way. 
either a relationship with another human being or a relationship vertically with God. And this language uh, comes up in a number of different places in the scripture. One of the main characters in the Old Testament is a man by the name of David. And David also started out his life as a shepherd. And uh, God elevated him to the place of being king over the nations of Judah and Israel. And so David uh, had incredible uh, wealth and resource and power. And uh, in a moment and in a season of weakness, David gives in to sexual temptation and sin. And he sees a, a woman who's another person's wife bathing and he uh, desires her. And so he hatches an elaborate plan whereby he can have a sexual relationship with her and then he can have her husband killed so that that covers it up. And then he involves a whole bunch of other lies and deception in this. And David writes after this experience about this really low moment in his life. In Psalm chapter 51, listen to what he says in verse 3 and verse 4. He's really pouring out his heart to God in reflecting on this. And he says, I recognize my rebellion. I, I know what I did. It haunts me day and night. But here's the language to pay attention to. He says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight and you will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. I read that and I pause and say to myself, wait a minute, David. Against God and God only have you sinned? What about the guy that you killed? What about the woman whom you forcibly raped? What about all the people whom you forced to lie on your behalf and the duplicity and all of the other things that swirled around you in that action? But see, what David is doing here is he's putting his finger on a particular aspect of sin's deception in our lives when it comes into our lives. And David's recognizing something about the nature of every single sin that you and I ever commit. Things that we do or things that we know that are right and we leave them undone. Every choice, little or big, that takes us off of the path that God has laid out for us grieves and wounds our relationship, not only with other people, but also and always with God. Sin always involves relationship with God being ruptured or distance in some way. And the challenge that we have is we can begin to think about sin as just being, oh, God has a bunch of religious rules that he wants me to keep. Fine, I'll try and get at that. And then when we break them, we can get into a bad habit of thinking, all right, well, I need to try and write the scales of justice. So if I've done a few bad things, I don't know, I'll do a few good things. I'll, I don't know, make a New Year's resolution, go back to church. I'll read my Bible. That'll get God off my back. Why don't I pray a little bit more? Maybe I'll give some money away to the people who are poor or to a ministry somewhere. That'll, that'll, that'll write the scales on my behalf, right? But see, when relationship has been ruptured, 
You can't fix a relational rupture through pious religious activity or behavior. You have to fix relational problems relationally. And so you have to fix sin problems relationally. And it requires authentic relational repentance in our heart. Look at what David continues to say in Psalm chapter 51. He's praying and asking God, and he says in verse 10, God, would you please create in me again a clean heart? Renew a loyal or a steadfast or a right spirit inside of me. Make me willing to obey you. Whenever you or I move to places of sin in our lives and we break relationship. It's like when you have a big windstorm, the other week we had one, and all of the debris comes down and so some roads become unpassable. And so repentance is just that act of sort of saying, I acknowledge that this road has become unpassable. We need to clear the debris out from this. And so repentance is that action of saying, God, I wanna acknowledge that there is debris, there's, there's something that has become problematic in, that's in between you and I. And David sets in motion, and many other people in scriptures give us wise and wonderful examples of a spiritual practice of confession. And confession is simply that act of acknowledging and saying to God what God already knows to be true that there's something that has caused a relational rupture or rift. And David models that for us in Psalm chapter 51. Confession is simply the act of saying to God and sometimes to other people, I acknowledge what happened. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? Works in human relationships too, right? but particularly when it comes to a relationship with God, it's healthy for us to pause every now and then, and sometimes often, and just acknowledge and confess. Some other uh, traditions have wonderful practices of this. The Anglican tradition has a practice of corporate uh, public confession every weekend as a part of their gathering. And that the prayer of confession and pardon that is from the Book of Common Prayer is one that I pray often. And I want to invite us to actually do that together now. We're going to pray it out loud all together uh, as a part of that practice of getting ourselves into that place of repentance. So you can look at the words will be up on the screen and let's just read it out loud all together. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. One of the beautiful things about confession is that we're taught repeatedly through the scriptures, and we see it again in Psalm chapter 51, 
that God is a God of mercy and compassion. And when we confess our sins, we are assured of forgiveness and pardon because God does not reject a repentant and broken heart. And you might be here today, or you might be listening and saying to yourself, you know what, Brad, you don't know me. You don't know my story. You don't know all of the things that I've done. I could never receive or be uh, in a place where I could be forgiven. And I want you to hear that that is a lie that needs to be broken over your life right now. Because God is always ready and willing to forgive and embrace those who come with a repentant and broken heart. You don't have to carry around the weight of guilt and shame for the things that you have done in your past. You can experience a liberation that comes from right relationship with God through confession. And if that's you today and you want to start walking out that journey, maybe for the first time, then I want you to come and you can talk with Allie or myself uh, or Katie or Constance during our time of prayer response. And we'd love to lead you in uh, starting that journey of confession and repentance and receiving the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that God offers to you. But before we get there, we've got a little bit more ground to cover in this text. And one thing we see is that uh, the majority of the book of Amos is focused on the nation of Israel. And so we're going to spend a lot of time over the next couple of weeks talking about what is God's specific words uh, to the nation of Israel because they have a lot uh, for us today. But this morning, there's three charges that God lays out against Israel. And it's like the uh, nation of Israel is getting pulled over and called to account for some pretty significant things. So what are the charges that God brings against the nation of Israel? Well, similar to the nations around them, if we look in Amos chapter two, starting in verse six, this is what the Lord says, the people of Israel have sinned again and again. I will not let them go unpunished. They have sold honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and they shove the oppressed out of the way. And so the charge that is brought against Israel is similar to the charge against other nations. They have oppressed and treated people who are poor with no dignity. They have, in fact, actively ripped it away from them. Look at Amos chapter 2 verse 8 where the prophet continues and says, at their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing that their debtors put up as security in the house of their gods or in the house of God, uh, depending on the translation. And they drink wine bought with unjust fines. And what's so stark and troubling about this is if you rewind the clock of history, not that far, these are the very same people, the same nation who themselves was once oppressed as slaves in Egypt. And they know what it's like to be trampled on and shoved out of the way. And now that they themselves have got to a place of relative economic security and ease and comfort, they have become the oppressors that are treating the poor 
with contempt. So you can take people physically or economically out of poverty or slavery, but it's actually a lot harder to get a mentality of slavery or poverty out of people. Yet this is exactly what God wants to put his finger on. And this is exactly what God actually designed structurally in the law, in the giving of the gift of the law to people uh, of Israel when they left Egypt. This image that is in Amos chapter 2 verse 8, the people lounging on cloaks or clothing that they have taken as security for debts is something that we wouldn't be really familiar with, um, but it, it bears a little bit more examination because it's fairly disturbing. So let's push into it a little bit more. Uh, Amos recognizes, like we recognize, that uh, some of the basic human needs are things like clothing, things like security, things like food and shelter. And uh, in the Old Testament times, people had these uh, outer cloaks or garments that they kept, and they would wrap themselves around them to keep warm and to protect themselves from the elements. And uh, so most everybody had these things, and you, uh, you would use them just through day-to-day -day use, but also they were kind of just your, your bare essentials for clothing. And um, God recognizes that uh, in, uh, he wants to put in place rules to prevent people from exploitation. And so in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 22, verses 25, God lays out some economic principles. And he says, listen, if you're going to take a loan from somebody and they don't have, you need something to guarantee that loan. And they're quite poor. So the only thing they have is literally the shirt on their back. If you're going to take that outer cloak for them, Exodus 22:25 says, you give it back to them before nightfall. Because then they can actually protect themselves. They can keep warm and dry through the night. Because these would be day laborers. They're, you've taken their garment for, so that they can, they're going to go out and try and make money that day so that they can pay you back the money that they've borrowed from you. And God says, you know, as a protection mechanism, I want to make sure it's a rule. Give that garment back to the person before they go to sleep at night and before you go to sleep at night. And here in Amos chapter 2, verse 8, we see that these people have collected so many garments and not given them back to those people. They're just spreading them around as lounge pillows and just using them and just almost superfluously. They're so calloused and uncaring. People who live on the street, people who live in extreme poverty, literally might not have a shirt on their back and they're just going off to a religious festival to have a nice glass of rosé. But people, these people, and people in our day and time are actively forgetting something deeply important as the reason why God gave that rule. And that is that God cares deeply about how people are treated. And especially when we read through the Old and the New Testament, God cares very particularly about people who are poor and oppressed and on the margins are treated. People who are poor 
have a very special and close place to God's heart. It's as if God says, you know what, if no one else will look after you, you got no family, you got no support structure, you got no one, I will look after you. In Isaiah chapter 25, the prophet Isaiah says, God is like a tower of refuge to people who are poor. And when people are needy, and when people are in distress, God says, I am close to them. I am a refuge to them. You are a refuge from the storm and a shelter from the heat. That's just one of the many, many verses where God reveals his heart about people who are in poverty. And so the thing that we have to ask ourselves is do my actions and do my attitudes toward people who are poor reflect the heart of God? Because God is not unclear about his care for people who are poor, people who are disadvantaged in some way. And recently uh, in our city and currently in our province and in our nation, we're having a discussion about housing for people who are living on the streets, people who are drug addicted. Uh, and we had a discussion here in, uh, in the city of Langley. And I went to the public hearings often. And I have to say, I was ashamed at a lot of the things that I heard expressed in those public forums. Because it seemed to me that people were more concerned about a few digits on their BC assessment notices and the value of their homes than they were with a compassionate response to people who were homeless and needing assistance in our city. And I get it, there's legitimate and uh, ways to do social housing and there are some legitimate concerns that can be put in place. But what I wasn't hearing was legitimate concern. What I was hearing was an active desire to say, we don't want those people here. They are not like me. We want them somewhere far, far away where I don't have to think about them or see them. And I'm not here to debate politics or strategies for low-income second-stage housing. But I am here to say that how we treat people, especially people who are poor, matters to God. How we talk about them. We don't say the poor as a category. We say people who are poor. They are people first, made in the image of God. And we as the people of God need to think and act clearly with respect to how we treat people who are vulnerable in our culture and in our city. Because if people who are poor are close to the heart of God, then they need to be close to my heart as well. Because I want to be a person who values the things that God values. And that's why here as a church, we go to Guatemala every year. Because when we look and see on the news, the migrant caravan, we want to get involved and try and help stop people from having to leave their homes because they have no home and because they can't provide for their family. That's why we get involved in things like Wagner Hills and drug addiction here in our own city to try and provide support and economic development for people. That's why Meg and I are leading a team again this year to Tanzania to work with people with albinism because people who are downtrodden, who are marginalized, who are poor, they matter to God. And so that means they better matter to me.
we could be here all day talking about this, something that's very dear to my heart, but we have to keep moving because there's more charges that God brings against the nation of Israel. Right there in verse seven, he keeps going and says they're engaged in perverse sexual activity. Two verse seven, they trample helpless people in the dust, but a father and son both sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. See, we live in a culture in our day and time that's extremely free when it comes to personal sexual expression. And the general mantra in our day and time is that so long as it's consensual and it's not hurting anybody, that it's okay. And so we tend to use language like, what's the big deal? You know, there are two consenting adults. Who cares what kind of lifestyle they live? Who cares what happens in their bedroom? And we, we tend to think of this liberality around sexuality as something, as a post-1960s phenomenon. But in both the Old and New Testaments, we see way worse stuff happening and completely explicit and damaging sexual activity. And God speaks out against this kind of sexual perversion because sexual sin has a unique way of blinding us. The Apostle Paul writes to another group uh, in the first century in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he says, gang, I can hardly believe it. This is to a church, churchy people. The report about sexual immorality going on among you as a church. Something even the pagans think is revolting and don't get involved in. I'm told a man in your church is living in sin with his having sex with his father's wife. And you're so proud of yourselves that you're liberated sexually. You should be a mourning and sorrow and shame. Like the people in Amos's day and time and the people in the first century in Corinth, people in our day and time take a lot of liberty with sexuality and sometimes much more liberty than is healthy. And so we would do well to reflect on the notion that God cares about what we do with our bodies. We are embodied created beings. The, first, the text in 1 Corinthians uh, continues in 1 Corinthians 6 in the next chapter, and the instruction or the response is, you know, around sexual sin and temptation, flee, run away from it, because no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. Sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And what we need to remember, keep in mind, is that this is not saying that God is down on sex, that somehow sex is a horrible thing that God hates. Sex is a beautiful gift from God. It's his invention. But it requires wise stewardship. There are expressions of sexuality that create damage, not only to our own bodies, but to our souls and to other people. When sex is wielded, without regard for the other person in a context of power. And we're having a discussion about that as a culture in the Me Too movement now. Sex needs to be stewarded in a way that God has designed and purposed for it within the boundaries of a committed, monogamous, marital relationship between a man and a woman where it becomes the expression of something so holy and deep and loving. It actually reflects the heart of God. And again, there's much more that could be said there. But we're going to move on to the third charge that 
is made against the people of Israel. And it's actually one of their greatest sins and it's one of the ones that I find, for me, I fall into most often as well. Look at Amos chapter two, verse 10. The Lord says, it was I who rescued you out of Egypt. I led you through the desert as a nation for 40 years so that you could possess the land of the Amorites. I chose some of your sons to be prophets and others to be Nazarites. Can you deny this, my people Israel? Asked the Lord. But they have forgotten this. They have forgotten what God has done for them. They have forgotten God's goodness and God's care. Look at chapter three, verse one. Listen to the message that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the entire family that I rescued from Egypt. Among all of the families of the earth, I've been intimate with you alone, and that is why I must punish you for all of your sins. Then finishing half with perhaps what's one of the most sorrowful verses in the whole book of Amos. In chapter three, verse 10, the Lord says, my people have forgotten how to do what is right. Their fortresses are filled with wealth taken by theft and by violence. God reminds his people and says, I've been so lavishly generous to you. I've poured out again and again patience and goodness and faithfulness and what God has received from these people in return is unfaithfulness, forgetfulness, and rebellion. God's people, because they have forgotten who God is and how God works in the world, have begun to treat other people with disdain. They've begun to oppress people who are poor. They've begun being stingy with their own financial resources. And they've begun to distort uh, their sexual expressions. And they've lived this way so long, they've actually forgotten how to do what is right. It's an incredibly sad indictment. See, God's plan and his purpose, and he communicated this so clearly to the people of Israel and Judah. He said, listen, my, my heart is I want to use you and you will be my people. I will be your God. I want to use you as a light to the nations to reveal to the world a path of justice and mercy and fairness and that as God's people walk in the light, nations around them would go, wow, something is different about those people. Something is going on over there. You know, they're on to something. I wonder what it is in the way in which they live and relate to their God that I want to choose to follow God. That was God's heart and his purpose and his plan with Israel. But instead we see that those whom God was closest to and who should therefore know better are actually doing worse. Those who've been given God's laws, who have God's heart revealed to them have actually forgotten how to do what is right. It's a tragic picture. But it's not only a picture that applies to the people in Amos's day. It can happen to anybody. It can happen to a church. 
church like Jericho. God's been at work in our midst in powerful ways in this last season, uh, bringing healing and restoration, uh, bringing his provision for a home like this for us to enjoy and changing people's lives and hearts. And yet we could sail into the future and, and just get complacent and kind of forget about all of God's goodness. And when that happens, then we start to get not only complacent, but we start to get our eyes fixed on stuff that really isn't consequential. We start to complain about, man, the coffee wasn't ready for me when I came here this morning. Man, stupid new building. Someone sat in my chair. I always sit in that chair. I've sat in it for the last two months that we've been here. No one says hi to me at this church. This church is so unfriendly. Hey, I confess, I'm a forgetful person. I'm very future forward. And, and I'm always thinking about what's coming next. And one of the dangers of that is I can become very easily forgetful about what's just happened in the recent past and the incredible things that God has done. And so it's a discipline to actually slow ourselves down and remember and reflect on God's goodness and his character and his love. So let me ask you, how do you keep in your life from forgetting God's good and faithful kindness to you. Maybe you have a, a ritual or a practice that you do that marks a certain event. This is the genius behind the liturgical calendar that the church uh, adheres to. Things like Advent, because it's a series of rituals that remind us about what God has done and is doing and will do. Something like Lent, which will come into uh, in the 40 days before Easter. It's a series of rituals and practices that help us remember what God has done. Some people uh, are more visual and they're artists. And so they might paint things or draw things that help them remember uh, uh, what God has done. I have a friend who on his Christmas tree, he puts up a new ornament every year that is a symbol of what God did in his life over the course of that last year. And so a number of years ago, God spared him miraculously and supernaturally from a horrific car crash. And so his car was totaled and he took the hood ornament off of that car and he puts it up on his tree every year. And whenever he puts it up, it's a reminder for him and he says, God, I thank you that you spared my life. And so every year, he's reminded again of what God did in the past. Because otherwise, we forget. We're just not able to keep all of that information in our heads. Uh, for me, my personal practice is, is journaling. I almost always keep a journal with me. Whenever I'm spending time with God or whenever I'm uh, in a group, I bring it to uh, prayer every Sunday morning so I can write down and remember not only the things that people are saying they want prayer for, but then I can remember when God answers to cross it out and go, oh, thank you, Lord. You were so good to listen and attend to that request in your mercy. So maybe for you, that's a practice that would be helpful. I write down what God's teaching me or has taught me in my life because otherwise I just won't remember it. One of the other practices that can be helpful in this is just weekly corporate worship. It's the simplest thing. Just put it in your calendar every week. Make it a priority because when you come into a place like this and make the discipline and the habit of assembling together you're just reminded again of God's goodness and his faithfulness that all things belong to him, that you are cared for and loved by him 
and by us as your community as well. And I'm just amazed at my own capacity to be forgetful and to become petty when I forget what God has been so richly generous toward me and toward us. And that's why I'm personally thankful for the gift of corporate worship because I know my heart. I'm a sinful, selfish person. But when I bring my whole body and myself to this place and I let the songs that we sing and the teaching from God's word and the connection with others reorder and center my life again on things that are important. It's a beautiful and holy thing. And so Megan and the team are going to come and they're going to lead us in three songs of response. And we've spent time in corporate worship and already in corporate confession. But maybe now for you, you want to spend some time uh, just in solitude or in quietness and in private uh, and asking God to search your heart, maybe in personal confession. And these songs are going to give some language for that and give you the opportunity. And I want to remind you, you don't have to sing just because there are words up there on the screen. If you need to just do some business with God and you want to just spend time in quietness or kneeling, uh, then feel free to do that at Jericho. We welcome you to stand or sit as you like. Maybe you want to declare your desire to follow God in a fresh way in 2019. Maybe you've got something that's worth celebrating and you say, I just need to tell somebody. The act of telling someone else what God has done in my life is a, is a way of acknowledging and remembering God's goodness and you want to celebrate and give God thanks for it. Uh, that's why our prayer team will be available at the back, Katie and Constance and myself. And that's what this time is for, really to bring our hearts to God and to each other in gathered community who can stand with you in prayer.